Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Last weekend, Ukraine crossed a grim milestone. It was two years ago today that Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The attack provoked, of course, global outrage, and since 2022, thousands of civilians have been killed. Say that it's like totally changed my life. Just basically, I go to sleep in one life, and I woke up in different, totally different life. Is the war effort going well for the Ukrainians? No, not at all. That's Fred Kaplan. He's been following the Russian invasion of Ukraine for Slate. The war had settled into a kind of a stalemate. You know, if you looked at a map and saw which way the, the front line was moving, it was barely moving at all, one way or the other. But in the past few weeks, Russia has, in fact, advanced. Russia's defense ministry says they have captured the eastern city of Avdivka, less than a day after Ukrainian officials announced they withdrew troops. Last week, Russian forces made their biggest breakthrough in nine months, but they lost 47,000 troops in the process. You know, if you think about our U.S. war in Vietnam, over a 10-year period, we lost something like 53,000 troops. So to lose 47,000 troops to capture one, I wouldn't even call it a city, let's call it a village or a town, over the course of a week. By comparison, in the 10 years of Russia's war in Afghanistan, Russia lost a total of 15,000 troops. And that was thought to be catastrophic. When Russia first invaded Ukraine, allied governments committed to doing whatever they could to help. Putin's actions betray his sinister vision for the future of our world. One more nations take what they want by force. But it is a vision that the United States and freedom-loving nations everywhere will oppose with every tool of our considerable power. Fast forward to today, and there's a palpable sense of fatigue. Did anybody think this war would go on this long? I don't think anybody really did. You know, at the very beginning of the war, when Russia first invaded, the U.S. intelligence agencies, which had forecast that a war would happen, thought that Moscow would, would win in a matter of weeks, maybe even days. When Ukraine fought back, uh, it was a big surprise. And then nobody really quite knew what would happen, but I think they figured that by the time one side or another started losing tens of thousands of soldiers, that there would be a negotiated solution to this. And that just hasn't happened. Today on the show, why the war in Ukraine is dragging on and why its conclusion may depend on the U.S. I'm Mary C. Curtis, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Russia currently controls over a fifth of Ukraine territory. But as we mentioned before, Fred says, neither side has gained much in the last year. If you were just looking at where the line dividing Russia forces from Ukraine forces, you, you wouldn't notice any difference. Two provinces in Donbass, in the eastern part of Ukraine, there have been some back and forths over control of the Black Sea, where Ukraine has sunk a couple of important Russian warships. There's still fight over some territory in the south. Crimea is still a, a fought over territory or, or bridges leading to Crimea. Ukraine had had this tremendous season of, of beating back the Russian offensive. The Russians were on the run. Uh, and it looked like Ukraine might, you know, push them all the way back into Russia, or at least to the point where Russia would have to negotiate. But in, in that period, Russia built up these enormous layers of defenses laid a lot of mines, I mean, tens of thousands of mines, and uh, got better at, at using drones for surveillance to see where the Ukrainians were. Uh, and so they were able to, to stop the Ukrainian offensive pretty much in its tracks. You've talked some about why Ukrainian forces are struggling so much, that they're outgunned. They're also running out of a fighting force. People as well, that's right. They might have to expand the mobilization because a lot of their troops are, are older. And, and, you know, all sides read the newspapers or listen to the radio or something. They know that the West is losing patience. They know that the, the general who was until recently their chief of staff uh, referred to the war as a stalemate. They know what's going on, and, and they see that the trend is not going for them, and that can have a demoralizing effect. At some point, at some point, this is probably going to end in a negotiated solution. And there's going to have to be 
some amount of trading territory for peace. But as long as the trends are in Russia's favor, and if it looks like Ukraine is about to be abandoned, Russia has no incentive to start negotiating. Everybody has his eye on the 2024 American election. If Trump wins, it is just assumed that he'll abandon Ukraine. He, you know, he might abandon NATO. He might quit NATO. You know, if you're Putin and you think that there's a possibility that in a year, in 11 months, your friend Trump becomes president again, and that therefore you might be able to win the whole caboodle. You might even be able to, to, to go conquer Kiev, which hasn't been in your sights since a month after this war began. Then why should you, why should you agree to any kind of negotiation in the meantime? What about the EU? If the U.S. support were to disappear, would Europe just let this go? Well, it depends. I mean, if they think that it's futile to keep spending tens of billions of dollars because the U.S. being the major force has dropped out of it, they might. Uh, and they might consolidate their own defenses. How about European border states? Is it clear that they would be safe? Places like Poland? No, listen, uh, you know, for many years, uh, NATO had this goal of each country should spend 2% of its gross domestic product on defense, and only a handful of countries did this. Well, now, and a lot of this is since first since Russia's initial incursions into Ukraine in 2014, and then especially in the last two years, 18 of the 30 countries are spending 2%, and the ones closest to Russia, like Estonia and Poland, they're spending 4%. They're getting very worried. The new east-west border in NATO is, is no longer Germany, it's Poland. In Tucker Carlson's ridiculous interview with Putin, Putin made several deprecating comments about Poland. Poland has a lot to be worried about. The Baltics have a lot to be worried about. Now, it's true I mean, they're members of NATO, and under Article 5 of NATO, if Russia attacks one of those countries, all the other countries of NATO, including the United States, are obligated to come to their defense. And really, you know, all things equal, Putin does not want that. But if he gets away with Ukraine, if, if Trump is in charge, and Trump has no eagerness to fulfill his obligations under the North Atlantic Treaty, uh, maybe Putin would take a chance. It, it, it's, a, it's a scenario that people are taking much more seriously than they ever have. We'll be right back after a break. For a long time, it seemed as though American support for Ukraine was resolute. The Biden administration has sent more than $75 billion to Zelensky's government so far. So when did it become clear to you that this support might not be guaranteed? Well, when the Republicans took over the House and when they all started to pay attention to their master, Donald Trump, and saying, well, you know, America first, why are we spending $60 billion a year on, on Ukraine? It's not worth it. I, I, think, I think that's when it started to happen. Plus, when Ukraine started 
pushing back Russian forces. When Ukraine was on the offensive and, and Russia was, was retreating, there was a lot of wildly over-optimistic talk from Zelensky himself, from his cheerleaders in the U.S., that Zelensky could win this thing. This could be over by the end of the year. Uh, the counteroffensive is going to be a massive success. And, and it wasn't. So I think that's when things started to turn, when it looked like, oh my God, is this going to be an endless war? Are we into funding this thing forever? For months, Democrats and Republicans in Congress have gone back and forth on a bill that would have supplied Ukraine with much-needed aid. Republicans insisted any legislation would need to include border funding. And Fred says, for just a minute there, Democrats were willing to play ball. Biden puts forth this package of aid to Ukraine, to Israel, a little bit to Taiwan, and then he couples it with boosting the budget for security in the southern part of the United States, border security. The Republicans in Congress say, no, see, seeing an opportunity for, for bargaining, they say, no, no, you've got to get much fiercer on the southern border of the U.S., otherwise we're not going to give you the money for Ukraine. To their surprise, Biden and the Democrats cave. They say, okay, Schumer, with the assistance of Biden, uh, negotiated a, a truly bipartisan bill that was money for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the southern border with fiercer provisions on the southern border than Congress has ever passed. I mean, really, I mean, even some of the, of the Democratic liberals were chafing at this. I mean, it really would make applying for asylum almost impossible. And yet they passed it. There were 70 votes in the Senate for this bill, including 19 Republicans, all the Democrats. And it would pass in the House easily, except that Trump has been calling Speaker Johnson he doesn't want it to happen. Why? Because one of his biggest issues in the upcoming election is the border, is migrants. If Biden is allowed a victory on this, that preempts his biggest election issue. And he doesn't care about Ukraine, and so he doesn't mind if that goes down the tubes. The, the ridiculous fluke that allowed the unknown Mike Johnson to become Speaker of the House is now possibly transforming the geopolitics of Europe. I mean, it's absurd. Fred, just what incentive is there for Trump and the Republicans to see Ukraine fall? How do they plan to govern in a world that would be pretty radically reshaped? Are they thinking of that? Some of them are. Some of them, I think, don't care. The big puzzle, someone like Senator Lindsey Graham, who has been very keen on, you know, America's place in the world and not letting Ukraine fall. And suddenly he's become a, a, the biggest Trump guy saying, well, we have to keep our eye on the southern border. The fact is, the fact is, yes, popular support for supporting Ukraine more has gone down in the U.S., but it's still above 60 percent in opinion polls. I've heard people who follow Congress more closely than I do say that if Speaker Johnson allowed this bill to come to the floor, this is a bill that got 70 votes in the Senate, 19 Republicans. If, if he allowed it to come to the floor, it, it would pass with 300 votes. If Ukraine collapses, 
And it's because the U.S. didn't come up with this latest tranche of, of aid. These people are going to look very bad in history, but I think a lot of them, they don't read history. They don't, they don't care. So a lot of this, to you, uh, depends on American support? Uh, at this point, you know, I wish it were otherwise. I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. The Europeans have stepped up to the fore. You know, Czechoslovakia recently found, oh, hey, we have 800,000 ammunition shells that we're now sending to Ukraine. The EU, even with Hungary signing on, an extra $50 billion. But it's the U.S. that's providing the bulk, that's providing the training, the coordination, the logistics, the intelligence support, and, and without the U.S., uh, it's going to look pretty dire. It sounds like so much of the future of this conflict is dependent on who wins the 2024 election. Can Ukraine hang on until November? Well, probably. A lot depends on whether this, this aid package goes through. I mean, there, we were, we've, we're now running at the end of what was in the pipeline, you know, the amount that, that, that Biden could continue to send of what had already been appropriated. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's touch and go. But, you know, I was in Berlin uh, almost exactly a year ago. It was in March, April, uh, talking with a lot of parliamentarians of all the parties and some think tank analysts. And they were all terrified at, at the prospect of, of a Trump presidency, not only for what it would mean to Ukraine, but, but for what it would mean to, to Europe. Uh, you know, Europeans are saying, oh, we've got we've we've to start managing our own defenses. We can't rely on the U.S. as a leader of NATO anymore. And that's good. But, you know, it would take at least 10 years for the Europeans to get their act together on this. Uh, if it's been a hard enough time getting the Europeans to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, I mean, if, if they're in it alone, it's going to have to be 5 8 10% over a period of the next 5 or 10 years. Uh, will Europe be able to hold out in the meantime? That, that's, that's an even bigger and more dire question. So what happens with this Ukraine-Russia conflict has a lot broader implications. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I generally don't consider myself an ultra-hawkish person or someone who talks about domino theories and things like that. But it's clear that a lot of countries, a lot of adversaries, have their eye on what happens to Ukraine and whether the U.S., especially after doing so much, can be counted on to, to keep up its part. And if the U.S. falls away from Ukraine, and if you're Xi Jinping you might be thinking, hmm, maybe we can mount a, a blockade of Taiwan and the U.S. won't do anything about it. If you're North Korea, you're thinking, maybe we can mount that invasion, an incursion into South Korea, and the U.S. won't be doing anything about it. I mean, it, it sounds, there, there is just a lot riding on this. And the fact that the whole thing is resting on the whims of Donald Trump and Mike Johnson is just one of the more appalling spectacles possibly in American political history. Thank you, Fred Kaplan, for coming on What Next? 
Sure, anytime. Fred Kaplan is Slate's War Stories correspondent and author of The Bomb. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.